The universe can be individually tragic, but it's cosmically hilarious. Today, I'm so pleased to say that I have with me someone I just met recently, actually. It was just last week. We had a fantastic lunch together. And I'm hoping you find out as much as I do during this podcast. So without any further ado, which I don't like saying, but I'm saying now, we have Randall. <laughs> Randall, how are you doing this morning? Good morning, Lance. I'm doing great. I mean, we have isn't a beautiful... It, isn't it Tokyo Tower to the right of, I mean, right <laughs> over there, and then looking up to the new Moribil, yep. largest office building in Japan right at the moment. Incredible. It's the largest. It's just been open. Oh. Azubudai hills is what it's called mm. and then as we continue around and we get to our pool over here right and a sky so floor. blue it hurts isn't it beautiful see it? It's, isn't it, it's nothing like a kansas blue. sky because we still have it say haze to it well we can't it's see the curvature of the earth Lance. that's right because you can actually do that in <laughs> certain places that's for sure Randall, we know i know where you're born you were born in kansas uh, and Growing up there, you're the only child? I am. I'm an only child. Right, I grew up on a farm in Kansas. And, and this was, my hometown was at the time maybe about 1,200 people. And I lived out in the farm. So it took us, we were a 10-minute drive away from anybody. From the next neighbor? Yeah, well, the next neighbor, technically the next neighbor was about a five-minute walk away. That was my grandparents. Okay. <laughs> so I'd walk down the hill. How long, how, how um, big was the property that you guys actually controlled? It was quite a bit. Now it was, you know, the, the way a lot of farms work is the fields are in different places in, you know, throughout the, the area. So I would say we had maybe somewhere in the area of, of a thousand acres. And what um, did you basically, what kind of? We raised wheat, mostly dryland wheat. So Western Kansas, where I'm from, is a semi-arid climate. So you don't get a lot of water. We did have some irrigated corn that we would raise, but mostly we had wheat. And then of course we had all the animals. We had, uh, we had about 30, 35 head of cattle. We had pigs, we had chickens. One of my first jobs was to get the eggs from the chickens in the morning. How old were you? Do you remember your age oh, at that boy. time? I mean, you know, kindergarten age. You know, you're, you know, oh, that's, really? oh yeah, you go so to- what, what, what was your feeling at the time? I mean, you just, you didn't have anyone to, to talk to about it or to discuss it with this is just what you did. That is, that is that's you know that's just how how life was you know I mean and and you went out you went out to the chicken coop and you you chased the chickens but off. Dad of their had perch. It, but Dad showed you how to do this first, right? Do you remember watching? Yeah, them? I think it was. Well, the chickens, I think that was more my grandmother. Okay. That 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 showed me how to do that. Now everything else was was Dad. Um, my great grandfather had homesteaded in that area. Um, from where? From, I do not know, somewhere okay. back east. Okay. Um, mostly he went to Kansas because he wanted to avoid taxes. Okay. <laughs> All right. What year, do you remember the year? It maybe? would have been late 1800s, early 1900s. Okay. You know, and that's where his children were born, and my grandfather stayed there, and his son, my father, mm -hmm. stayed there. But how many children did he have, your grandfather? My grandfather had three. Two boys and a girl. And your father ranked where? He was the youngest. He was the baby of the family. Okay. And my uncle, he was also a farmer. Um, my aunt, she ended up marrying a guy in town. And the local 
uh, editor of the newspaper. Okay. And I worked for him for a time, too, when I was in high school. Uh, I did some reporting uh, on city council meetings, and, and I remember going to the printer with him, which was an hour's drive away. This your to uncle. get the paper. Yeah, this was my uncle. I would so. So as a little kid growing up there, did you were you homeschooled or did they have a school? No, we you had went to? we had a school. We had one public school. Um, we had two traffic lights, but one only worked during school hours. Okay. But we had yeah no we had a, a I think a good public school, and and actually as a matter of fact now this brings me up to high school, and and I did not know this at the time, but this was my first experience and exposure. To Japan, in high school. In high school. So let's go a little bit back into oh, elementary sure. school. A little bit. Okay. I want to stay there oh, a little sure, bit for one. Sure. So, in, what was it like? You're out there, and how many kids were in your class? Or Thirty-six. How big <laughs> did you have one teacher that took you through several grades? No, we you have like a teacher that? every different year. You did. Okay. Um, so you know, every every year you'd have a teacher, but the total year, the total class size, and this is the same people we graduated high school with. Thirty-six. Was Thirty-six. So. Tell me, how big was your school? Did you have a um, football field? Or we did. You have, we did. did we you have had a um, yeah. elementary, junior high, high school. It was all one building. It was a big building, but okay. it was all one building. And we had, how many kids did we have there? Maybe around 700. Okay. That was kindergarten through 12th grade. Now, I'm going to ask the ethnicity of the group there. Everybody was white? Basically? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But from different... Like some were Swedish, white, some were, I mean, if you went back, Yeah, generationally, right. most right. people, by the time you get, you, by the time you made yourself to Kansas, you have had you, to take several generations I got you. <laughs> to I get got there. You. But yeah, I mean, very monocultural. Okay. Um, very much, you know, this is, and, and we did, you know, occasionally. Now, in the summertime, when it was harvest time, we had a lot of folks come up from Mexico. Of course. To work on the harvest. Now, this was back before... What year are we talking? Oh, this what would years? have been in the 70s and 80s. In the 70s, okay, 70s so 80s. this was before a lot of the immigration uh, Issues policy in, in, right. in the U.S. came up. And at that time, it was interesting, and I'm, I'm not going to say whether it's good or bad, but the border was relatively porous. So what you'd have is you'd have people coming up from Mexico. They'd work on the farms for the summer, then they'd go back. Mm -hmm. After the border got much more, much tighter, people come in, they can't get back. And then they want to bring their families over. Then you have a, so I'm not saying that's the cause of the issue, but it is certainly, in my experience, it was a temporary. Immigration was always a temporary thing. It was something people came up, they did their thing. And went back home. And then they went back home. Hmm. So, yeah, ethnically, we had in people from Mexico coming up. So how old in, when you first started to see people from Mexico coming up? How old were you when you what, realized? When were, I realized it, yeah. When right. I realized yeah. it, probably in junior high school, okay. you know. Um, there were also a couple of folks who were partly uh, Native American okay. uh, from Oklahoma, uh, from the reservations. They moved right. their way up to Kansas for some reason. But mostly there was not, there was not really diversity right. from an ethnic right. And how, how old were you when you started to realize that? Because with, I, I've worked with children for a long yeah. time, and I realized they have to be taught. No, yeah. They have to be taught that there's an ethnic difference. Other than that, yeah. that's just the person he was. You could have one leg. Oh, yeah. That was just Johnny. Oh, they well, don't even think about it. Now, so much, that know. was a part of diversity. Because right. growing up on a farm, farming. People were missing all kinds of. Oh, growing up on a farm was a dangerous business. Um, as a matter of fact, I would say my father, one of the luckiest men that I know, because he, uh, he passed 
with nine and a half fingers. He's passed now. He's not. Yeah, alive. he's passed now. He's not with us. But he had uh, nine, he had nine and, and a half, half fingers because he got rid of half of his thumb. In but most of the you know, yeah, like that? always there's yes. you always pull on a belt somewhere right. and 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 by belt just I mean a machine it and, and it just whips something right off and lots of people with you know with 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 a missing arm or right. digits tend That's to right. tend to go away right. quick. Right. <laughs> but then also like I that. mean there's I I I know I I haven't been I wasn't raised around a farming mm. house but I just know from history yeah. and seen it. A lot of people, a lot of facial injuries too, because oh, yeah. of things hitting you, oh, yeah. coming off of stuff. So oh, very much know. so, very much so. Now, coming back to your your question, I would say from a you know learning about the world, um, that was something that I would I would have been in high school before I really realized that, just because it, again, like you said, it wasn't part of my existence. And there was no need to even discuss it because mm. it was it wasn't something you had to deal with. And in high school, we actually had one family. I mean, granted, it's only 1,200 people, so one family is a statistically significant population. But one family who were refugees from Laos, and they came up in the 80s. This was, you know, we, we, we as Americans, we think of the Vietnam War as the Vietnamese call it the American War. And after that was finished, they immediately went to war with the Chinese. And that entire region was embroiled in conflict for several decades, and it affected a lot of people. And one of these families managed to make their way to the U.S. And they made their way to Kansas. Uh, an hour away from where I grew up was a large community of people from Laos and people from Vietnam. They were working in the meat packing plant. And so actually, the last time I went back to Kansas, I went to this city and some of the best Vietnamese restaurants you have is in the middle of western Kansas uh, because that people wanted to bring their food and I'm glad of it so you know it was it was it was a really interesting experience but in high school we had a family move and uh, the daughter uh, was in my class and so just understanding what grade, what grade in high school you had? this would have been ninth grade ninth grade okay, just starting okay. oh yeah and came up the rest of the four years with us, graduated with us, and I don't know where she is now. Um, but you know, it was just an interesting experience for me to realize, wait a minute, there's another world out there now. And you're about to tell me that's when you you said in high school is when you started. Yes, to get there? and this is because of my history teacher. My history teacher, Donald Richter. Okay, this is that's about as white a name as you can imagine, okay. right? <laughs> Great guy, eccentric, beautifully subversive in the sense of helping people understand that there's always another viewpoint. There's always another way to look at things. And when he was given budget for his classroom, he turned it down. He got in his pickup truck, because we all had pickup trucks back then, and he drove over the border into Colorado and he drove to a little place called Camp Amachi. Camp Amachi in World War II was a Japanese internment camp where Japanese were forcibly moved and they were, they were put there. And he asked them, what are you all gonna do with your desks? And they said, well, we're gonna throw them away. He said, I'll take them. And he took those desks back to Syracuse, Kansas and he put them in those classrooms. And the first desks that I studied history in as a college student 
were those desks. And he made sure you understood where they came from, the significance in, of them. In very subtle ways. That's the thing. He couldn't do it. Now, this is a very conservative area. So if he starts right. doing that, people go home, they say, oh, teacher told me this. And then, 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 then things get, we have a conflict. And he, and he was brilliant. At, so how do you do um, it? He would just, he would occasionally just kind of trace the, the graffiti as we would walk through the aisles. So that we just, what is that? The kanji that was on Yes. What is that? No, I, he didn't know what it was either. But he was always saying that there's always something new to look at. There's always another viewpoint to look at. He had us analyze not only the history textbook, but he said, well, where's that history textbook written? Because if the history textbook comes from New York and another history textbook comes from Texas, the accounts of the American Civil War is going to be very different. And he had us read passages from both. Understand bias. Under, and it's, the bias is not a bad thing. It's a natural thing. This actually, I think, you know, when I, I, of course, this is all in retrospect. But when I look on my life now and what I'm doing with, with intercultural uh, effectiveness, with, with team building, with helping leaders understand the impact that they have on other people, that's really where a lot of that comes from. Is this idea of there's always, well, where did you learn that? Who taught you that? How are you? What I'm curious about that way of thinking. Where does that come from? And that that idea was really is really key to how I continue when I work now as a coach, as a leadership development person, is it's not about me teaching people how to be a CEO, because I can't do that. I've never done that. But what I can do is I can just be passionately curious about the mindset. Where does that come from? Where, how, did, how did you find that out? How did you discover that? What's, what do you observe when you see that? Similar to what you're doing with your that's questions, right, Lance, because right, you're, right. you're using, you're leveraging your natural curiosity to pull out these stories. You know, Randall, that is such a good way. And we have to keep on reminding ourselves of that. But unless we're in your profession, we tend to just do what we've been doing over and over and expect different results. Yes. We keep on doing the same thing and wonder why we keep on. We're like that fly that's in your car. The, the window's open on the side, but he's on the front window. And he keeps on hitting it thinking yep. it's going to go. But he doesn't fly outside and realize everything else is open. Or he could be in a convertible. Exactly. <laughs> doing the same thing over yep. and over. That perspective aspect of our lives that history Mm -hmm. It depends on, that's why it's called his story. <laughs> yes. It depends on who's writing it, it as to what it turns absolutely. out to be. Yeah, it really does. And, and every story that we tell is a reflection of us. That's right. So if you want to learn about somebody, listen to the stories they tell. I've worked a lot on culture change. And what I've come to realize is that, especially with corporate culture, is that cultures are designed in three basic ways. We design them through the structures that we build, the systems that we use, and then finally, and I think most importantly, the stories that we tell. When you walk into any company, I would say don't walk into the boardroom, walk into the cafeteria and just sit in the middle and listen. What are the stories people are telling? And you'll find out a lot about the... That is a good way to structure. find out a lot about which is important yeah. to the people in there. I say that all the time. I noticed that when I was in the service. Were you ever in the military? I was not. But okay. my father was and told me a lot. And 
He was in World made, War II? During he, World War, no, he Korean? was in uh, Korea and Vietnam. He was okay. in the National Guard, so okay. he never went overseas. Okay. Um, he protected Colorado from attack. Right. <laughs> I didn't even think about joining the National Guards. I didn't even, and that's not really, I think they were under a different brand. I think they weren't, they were fe the federal government, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And it was different than ours. It was. In the it other was. branches. It was. And, and they were responsible basically for securing the borders of the U.S. Yes. And for assisting mm. in disasters. That's now, right. it was interesting, you know, one of the stories my father tells about his, his time. So he talks about boot camp and he talks about the different things. And that was always very interesting to me as a kid to hear his stories. But he does say, he said he was in three units when he was in the Guard. And the first unit he was in was, um, was a mess unit, um, which was interesting to me because... Lance, the man couldn't cook. He was not. He, he was, was responsible for cooking? Well, I hope not. Okay. But he, he could have been the messenger. He could have been the pot cleaner. You know, Let's hope he, he was. Right, I think right. he probably would have done a good job right. on that. Now, his, did he spend four years, six years? How many years did he stay in the uh, You know, I don't, because this was before okay. I was born. So, Because right. so he's obligated, I'm sure, to yes. at least four. Yes. Because you, you can't be drafted into that. You have to be yeah. enlisted. Yeah. So he, he went into the guard. He got into a mess unit. Then he got transferred to a medic unit. Which is interesting, too, because the man couldn't stand the sight of blood. So, again, I think right place, right time, right job, they hadn't got him in there yet. Now, in a, in a, in a cosmic bit of luck, this was at the time toward the end of the Vietnam War, they started calling up guard units to send over. And he got transferred out of his medic unit into a survey unit. So, survey, just, you know, measuring... Two weeks after he got transferred into the survey unit, his medic unit got called to go to Vietnam. He so he missed, yeah. he missed by, by, a, by a hair's width, hair's width to, to go. And, and, you know, that was, you know, he talked about that. He said, sure. you know, um, we had extensive conversations. You know, he, he would have gone, of course. Didn't want to. Who did? But that was it just one of the ways that, that, that life kind of worked out for him. And he knew he wanted to do, you know, at the time where I'm from, service, military service, that kind of thing is almost expected. When I grew up, and it's interesting you asked the question, is that, you know, growing up in, in, in Kansas where I grew up, graduating from high school, there were three options. You went to the military, you stayed home and got married, or you went to college. The college track was the track that was least used. And I was able to get scholarships and I was able to afford to go to college. That's that what I was, was going to ask you this that. question, Randall. As a child, were you more physical or were you more academic? Oh, I was not physical at all. I was, I was much more academic. I was the smallest kid in my class. I know it doesn't look like it now. Mm -hmm. But uh, smallest kid in my class, very unathletic. And in a place where, in the Midwest, basketball, football, American football, these are, these are religions as much as anything else. And I couldn't do any of them. Well, did your mother and father read to you a lot? Or did my you mother read to me a lot. Uh, my, my mother read to me a lot, even before I was born, she says. Okay. She would read to me. What was her job? What did she do? She was a nurse. She was a nurse, okay. As a matter of fact, she was a, she was a nurse at a local hospital. And then for several years, she was a school nurse. At which your was, school? 
at, at our at my, my school and which was just massively embarrassing for of course of course no one wants their parents <laughs> to be with them right you know go see the nurses and i don't want to go see mom <laughs> she was i mean but she was amazing you know and she she uh is she with us still? she is oh that's beautiful she is she's still going she strong i still have um you know, using the technology that we have today, I still have a conversation with her at least twice a month. Is that right? Uh, we do video calls, you know. They got to kind of watch my children grow up on the video. You're two beautiful girls. Uh, oh, absolutely. I have yes. two girls, 14 and 16. 14, 16. My goodness. Can't hardly believe it, my own self. Oh. But they were able to see that every piano concert. Every, we were able to record them all and send them all. And, and make sure that they were as involved, you know, and you're on the other side of the world, it's tough to be involved. Uh, and family's really important to everybody. It is. But it's really important, and when you're not physically there, you gotta find a way. Firstly, mm -hmm. yeah. we live at this time. And we, and well, and you and I have had this conversation, you know, back in the day, it wasn't like that. It was not at all. I mean, there's telephone calls, letters. Not to, the telephone calls were short because they were mm. so expensive. Yes. And you had cards if yes. you were here. Yep. Because I came here in the 70s, the early 70s. It was, and then sometimes the static. Oh, yeah. It was still the time that if you didn't want to talk with someone, you could get some paper and say, ah, can't hear yeah. you. <laughs> and people would believe <laughs> it. They'd believe it because they, they knew it was Oh, yeah. Me. Well, and I would have, so when I was in college, I first came to Japan in 1992. Okay. So this is about 30 years ago now. And I was living in an apartment just off campus. But let's get to where, oh, how sorry. did you, how, no, yes, how did yeah, you, good, what, good question. What, what brought you, 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 I know your interest was yep. spurred in high school because of the deaths, but you didn't make it clear as no. to what, did he, when did he nope. start the same thing about it being? So there was no, again, there was no direct conversation about it. Okay. He just let that happen. He just let, he just, he just set the environment. And this is a very a big difference between teaching and coaching. And he was as much of a coach as he was a teacher. But do you think he was aware of that? Because I, I do. My father, I think, did a lot of things for me. But I realized later that he wasn't aware. It was just mm. I was his last son. Ah, sure. And he was being, he had learned a few things, mm -hmm. as most parents do. The first one gets the blunt of all your parents' insecurities. Yeah false beliefs about how it is to raise yes. someone and if there are enough people in between you and that you happen to be right. you know you you tend out you tend benefit to from that experience. benefit from that experience the fact that they didn't have any experience yeah you know yeah. <laughs> you know prior to yeah having children no i i honestly think that this teacher and this teacher is no longer with us unfortunately but but i honestly think that he knew and he was and he also knew that he would not and i think this is this is incredible I think he knew he would not succeed for the most part. That for most of it, because this was, I mean, seeing, we didn't know it was kanji. We didn't know it was Japanese. We didn't know anything about it. And he couldn't teach us anything about it. And for most people, it went right over the head. And they just went on and lived their life, and it was fine. And for a few of us, we just, and I didn't even know what it was. So fast forward the tape to college. So I'm a freshman in college. I, I go to a small college in Kansas, still in Kansas, also a six-hour drive away. Okay. So Kansas, right. it's a Midwestern state. They're right. all big, They're rectangular big. They're big. states. Right. So I'm in college, and the college president was from the same hometown. So, I mean, I knew him. I knew his parents. Okay. So 
he would occasionally invite the kid over for dinner, you know, take care of him, you know, make sure he's doing all right. And over dinner one evening, and I think my parents were there too, and he was bemoaning his situation. And I said, and he said, he said, you know, I, I want to start this exchange program with Japan, with International Christian University in Mitaka, Japan. He said, I can easily find a Japanese kid who wants to come to Kansas because they will learn English. I can't find an American who will spend an entire year in Japan. Because everyone he had asked turned it down? Mm -hmm. And my first response is, well, I'll go. And everybody stopped. My parents stopped mid-bite. And the president looked at me and he said, are you serious? And I said, why not? Now, mind you, the next morning I went to the library and I looked up on a map where is Japan. <laughs> I didn't know a thing. And then as I started, you know, preparing, for, a month later, the admissions director knocked on my dorm room door and said, President wants you to fill out these forms. Eighteen months later, I was on the third airplane I'd ever ridden on in my life, flying somewhere over the Pacific. And somebody in my head said, you don't speak any Japanese. What are you doing? And I got into Itami. This was in Osaka. I spent the first two months in Kyoto in a homestay as a study a little Japanese and prepare before my year in Tokyo. Um, profound, profound experience. This is 92. This is 90, 1992. And I, I arrive in Itami. This is before Kansai International Airport. So Itami was still an international airport at the time. And I was nervous. I'd never been to another country. I mean, I've been to some border towns in Mexico, but nothing really, you know, felt like another country. And you know it. You land in Japan. You know you're in another country. <laughs> so I arrive, and I'm going through the customs, and I'm, I'm expecting the worst, full of anxiety. Are they going to let me in? He, the customs official looks to me, and beams the brightest smile I think I've ever seen. And he said, why are you here? I said, studying. He said, do you speak Japanese? Not yet. Okay, and he brought up this big poster of all the things you're not supposed to have, the drugs, the guns, the different things. And he said, do you have? I said, nope. He said, okay. And, and I said, do you need to look? He said, no, 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 no. you just go. Be fine. So that was a nice welcome to Japan. I got in and I met with the school. This was a program from Oklahoma State University. They operated an island campus in Kyoto. And so this wonderful lady that was meeting all the flights, and she said, there's another flight coming in, meeting some other folks, just hang out for a half an hour or so. And, and she was fluent in English, and I thought, this is going to be fine. This is going to be great. I'm looking out at you know, the, the landscape of Osaka, which is very different. I mean, I grew up with farmland and, you know, mm -hmm. sky and stars, and, and I'm looking now at buildings and, and cars, and it's just this modern metropolis, amazing place. She drives me out to my host family, and she drops me off and says, okay, well, tomorrow you'll go to the local train station and the bus will pick you up take you to school and now you're in your host family and my host mother looked at me and she didn't speak a word of English 
And I looked at her and I didn't speak a word of Japanese. And both of us, for whatever reason, I don't know why, for, both, for some reason, we were both able to kind of project outside of ourselves and see this as if we're watching a YouTube video. And we're seeing these two mostly adult people completely unable to communicate the most basic of things. And we both just found that utterly hilarious. And we started laughing. Not at each other, but at ourselves. The situation, and at yes. The situation, because it was, it was hilarious. She was trying to ask me, what do you want for dinner? I was trying to say, anything is fine, because I wanted to be very open-minded. We couldn't understand that. Well, that's hilarious. The most basic of conversations that you need for life, we weren't able to have it. And instead of getting angry, we just appreciated the humor in it. And, and you know, she was just one of the most amazing. Are you still in contact with them? I'm still in contact with the family. My host mother passed several years ago. And I was very sad to, to, uh, to hear that. I wasn't able to be there. And that was... The father's you know, still alive? The father's still alive. Um, the youngest son I am still in contact with. Now, he's, he was seven. How many children time. do they have? Three. Three, three two boys and a daughter, okay. and the youngest son. Uh, he he took charge. He was my first Japanese teacher. He'd just run around the house and touch things, and he'd say them in Japanese. And he'd say "isu," and then he'd touch his shoes, and he'd tell me this is what it is. And then that first night at dinner, my host father finally got home. He could he could speak a little bit of English, and he could write, and he had a big dictionary. We, there was there were there were no there were no iPhones. Right, right, nothing. So he spends about twenty minutes to write. We want you to try traditional Japanese food. I said, okay. Now I had one thing that I did on the on the flight is I had made a promise to myself. I said I'm gonna try everything twice. Try it once, don't like it, and then try it one more time. Give it another chance. If you try it twice, you don't like it. Okay. But I said, I'm going to try everything twice. So I said, okay. So they bring out, and they had, they had gone all out. They had really spent the money. They, they this massive, the boat of sashimi that you get. And so they bring all of this raw fish out. Well, Kansas farm boy. You've never eaten raw, you've never eaten raw fish. Lance, fish for me was Mrs. Paul's. I hear you, I hear you. <laughs> and once a year, my father would take a, a, a fishing trip with his buddies down to New Mexico. They'd bring back rainbow trout and grill the rainbow trout. But once a year was the only time we had fresh fish. There was no water in semi-air climate. So I see this and I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do this. But I look in the back and I look at my host mother in the kitchen, busy in front of a stove, frying up steak and potatoes, just in case, just in case I can't eat that. She's, she's making sure I can have it. So now, two things. One, I know I have a safety net. Two, the kindness and compassion that I'm receiving from these people is so incredible. I got to try this stuff. So I get out a piece of get a piece of tuna because it's red. Okay, well, steak. All right. So I'll just pretend it's a rare steak, and I just put on so much wasabi because <laughs> I thought it's sauce. If I put enough sauce on it, it'll be fine. 
and I, I lather up that, and my host father's like, just a little, and I put it in, and my sinuses are still clear. 30 years later, I've not had a sniffle. <laughs> well, okay, so I got to try it again. <laughs> and from the second bite, I loved it. And then I still let's try the octopus. Oh, let's try the squid. Oh, let's try the salmon. And so now I'm in adventure mode. And I'm loving it all. And the seven-year-old boy ends up, he hates fish. And he got my steak. I made a friend for life that night. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> and, and, you know, he and I have still been in contact. I think he's a doctor now. Isn't that right? Does he have and a family? He does have a family. He introduced when his when his uh, when his son was I think son I'm sure it was several years ago in Osaka, but he introduced me. That's he nice. brought the baby over. That makes it all worthwhile. Oh, so you leave from you leave from Osaka. You go to so leave from 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 Osaka. You go those first two months, and I come to Tokyo. Okay, Tokyo, still right. ninety two. This is right. this is August ICU, September. Right. I go to ICU. That makes. A lot of Americans very worried about me because they tell them I spent a year in ICU and they said, "What was wrong oh, with you?" <laughs> it's, 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 not no, no, no. it's not the same. It's not the same International it's Christian, Christian University. University, right? Uh, Christian University started. At, I've always been a bit of a nut for history, and so I've always explored kind of the history of my surroundings. Well, um, International Christian University, founded in 1952, which you'll remember is the year. The American occupation ended. Yeah, I was born. It was an airbase. Uh, the the main thoroughfare, currently that you go down to go to the main hall, was a runway where planes would take off. And in a in a wonderful example of people really beating swords into plowshares, is what they did after the war is they took that runway, they kept it as a road, and they planted. Cherry blossom trees, the entire length, and I don't know if you if you visited there. First, I told you, I think when we met before, my first secretary ah. was from there, and I went I went down that very I went down that very runway because the administration office mm -hmm. where you applied for you was to the right side of yep, that. Yep. You went over there. I went up there and put up a, in those days after they qualified you, you had a company. Yeah. You just put up there. I needed to be twenty to twenty five. Mm -hmm. Female, right? And I had about six or seven different women come to my place in Mitaka because I yeah. lived right next oh, to. Oh, so you're coming in totally Jekyll. familiar. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And oh. I taught at the American School. The oh, exactly, right there. exactly. So you know. So that's why I live there. The cherry blossoms there are absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And and it was really it was it, it was it was now that was it was a life changing experience. Now that bear base, so you so it's clear mm -hmm. it was a Japanese air base. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right, yes. Right, yes. Right. That's not the, a U.S. No. Air no. Base, no. Not exactly. Right. And so, I mean, a lot of times when people say, well, why did you come to Japan in the first place? I don't have the typical answer. I mean, many people are, you know, it's, it's, it's history, it's culture, it's jet samurai, it's jet program, it's, it's anime now and manga, and, 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 and all of those are wonderful reasons. But you were sitting at a dinner, your professor saying, can't get anyone to go, and you said, I'll go. That's why you came to Japan. That right? was it. And, and you know, I, I reflect on that sometimes. I think, is there any country that he would have said that I would have said no? And 
I'm not sure there is. Okay. And we would be having a very different conversation. So we wouldn't be having it. Or exactly, would be there, yeah. you know, I might be in I might be in Korea or China yeah, right. or That's Russia right. or Ecuador or right. France or you know or Kenya or That's wherever so yeah. he was asking. And again, that's I, I, I thinking back on that, it's it's a curiosity, and it's a, it's the idea that well, what's what's around that corner? Let's go see. I always when I and I love walking, and I walk like crazy. My step counter is off the charts, and it's not because I'm an amazingly fit guy. It's because as I'm walking. What's over that hill? What's around that corner? What, what, what's, 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 what's there? I've never been that way before. I moved and I moved to Chofu where I live now about a year ago. I just pick a direction and go and walk. But see, you're in a place where you can do that too. Well, this is the truth. I mean, now, especially for a city as developed as this, I can't think of a place in the world you could do it. It's absolutely incredible. You know, and, and you know, we used to live in Otaku, uh, right on the banks of the Tama River loved walking in that area and where i am now i'm not close to the tama river i'm close to nogawa and i walk and it's green and the water is so clear you can see the you know you can see the bottom of it and yet i get on a a, a train and i'm in shinjuku in 20 minutes mm -hmm. i am mm -hmm. as i mean as growing up where i went you know i mean the nearest mcdonald's was an hour away there you go the nearest airport, even now, the nearest airport is a four-hour drive. You know, I'll fly into Denver, Colorado, and then it's a four-hour drive to get to, to my mother's home. Oh, my goodness. So I, I've told Americans that, and I've had people say, I didn't know there was anywhere in America that was four hours away from an airport. And there are little airports, right. but they're, all right. for, they're not for commercial airlines. So when you finished at ICU, mm. there was only for one year. It was only for one year. So you went back to the year. States. I did. I went back to Kansas. Okay. And I realized that my history degree that I was planning on getting, I couldn't get because there was one class offered during my junior year that I had missed and it wasn't offered my senior year. And I couldn't afford to go a fifth year college. Didn't have the coin for that. So what do I do? And this is where an academic advisor is one of the most important people in a student's life. Because my academic advisor, he said, well, there, there is a way. I said, let's talk about what did you study in Japan? I said, well, deep into Japanese philosophy, Japanese history, um, peace studies, conflict resolution. So I did all of these different courses, mostly focused on Japan, mostly focused on Asia. And he said, I think you might have an Asian studies degree. If you have enough courses during your senior year. And I looked at him and I said, Larry, there's, there's no, college doesn't have an Asian studies major. How do I do that? He said, and we don't have any courses. He said, well, next door, the history professor there um, has done a lot of work on Asian history, specifically India, China, Korea, Japan. Okay. So you can work with him and design some independent study courses. And then what you do is you write a proposal to the college's academic committee and you make the argument that the course of study that I am currently taking is worthy and if I look at other colleges it matches 
the other colleges that offer an Asian study degree. It matches that. And for that reason, I believe that I have the academic credits to get an Asian studies degree. So to my knowledge, I'm the only graduate of that college. With an Asian? I do not. It is not a BA. It is a Bachelor of Philosophy in Asian Studies. So I wrote my own major. That's beautiful. Of course, you know, I would never have known that had my advisor done it. So that was my senior year. And then I'm thinking, what do I do? You know, and I got a lot of these professors and they're recommending different things for graduate school. And again, I still had this, this history teacher track. That's what I wanted to do. But one person put down a, an application to the JET program. They said, get you back you to Japan. And I said, well, the one thing I learned in my first year in Japan is the one thing I continually learn, which is just how much I don't know. <laughs> I think life teaches you that. It does. It really does. If you have does. your eyes open at all, that's what life teaches you. And so I was like, well, I still have a lot to learn about Japan. Why not go back? And that would be a job, paying job. I need that. So let's go. So was this 96? This has been 94. 94. So I graduated oh, so in 94. Right back. Okay. And I came right back. So 92 to 93, I was in Japan. Right, 93, right. 94 in Kansas. And I haven't lived in Kansas since. So you've been here all since 94? I have not. Um, I was three years, so JET program at that time was a three-year maximum. I was sent into the countryside because I wanted to, that's where I wanted to be. They sent me to Nara. Now for a history nerd like I am, and I wasn't in Nara City, I was in the southern part. <laughs> so you had, you know, Japanese history. Nara was the second, Nara City was the second capital. The first capital was Asuka, and I was living right next to there. Oh, so we had a good time. Yoshinoyama, Yoshino-san, the mountain in Yoshino that is just laden with cherry blossom trees, and they all bloom at different times of the of, of the spring. And this is where Hideyoshi famously would go to observe. The he would have his hanami there, and I would go there every year just because I could take a train down there. So this was a beautiful three-year maximum. Three years came and went, and I didn't want to go. Mm. And so, uh, but the job still ended. So I found another job in a juku, teaching regular English and also English conversation. And really working for a guy that was not interested in education. This is where I learned that not everybody that's, that works in education is interested in it. He was very interested in the money I was making for him. Now, during that year, I had a couple of realizations. One was, this is not where I want my life to be. Second, as much as I do value language and language learning, it's not everything. It's not the bulk of communication. To really have an understanding with a human being, language is incredibly useful, but it's only one tool. And, I mean, I'm sure you've known people like this. I've known several people like this. You meet them, they're non-Japanese, they're fluent in Japanese, scary fluent in Japanese. And they walk into a room and all the Japanese go, oh, 
clue is this guy? They hate working with him. And then on the other hand, you have another guy that gets fresh off the boat, doesn't speak a word of Japanese, stumbles around after his first experience with sake, and Japanese love him, and they'll do anything for him. And on the other hand, you have Japanese people that are like that too. You have Japanese people who speak English, and like, yeah, but I don't, I don't want to work with that guy. And then contrasting, you know, my first, when I was in Nara, one of my hobbies is, uh, and I counsel people to do this, if you know, do a hobby. You know, figure out something that you love and do it, and do it with Japanese people. It'll help your language, help your culture. My hobby back in the day was I was a taiko drummer. I was also a junior high school teacher, so the idea of getting together once a week and spending a couple hours just beating the hell out of something was very appealing to me. And we were all—I mean, we would—we we we played at festivals. Um, we sometimes got a little money. For it as well, which we immediately went out for yakinipu and beer. But we had a really good time, and my the leader of that didn't speak a word of English, and I would say he's one of the best communicators cross culturally I've ever known, because of his open mindedness, because of his curiosity, because of his the warmth of his spirit. He was able to make connections with people that that I could only dream of. And a great mentor to me in, in, in how to do that. Mm. How to get, you know, you don't have, you know, it's important to try. But you don't have to be fluent in everything. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, sometimes it's, it's good to not be because That's then true. it lets you learn. Then, then you mm. say, well, teach me that. That's right. That's right. And it's just an incredible experience in Nada. And, and, but that realization, that communication is not only about language, led me. In 90, we're up now, i got to do the math now, we're up to 97. 97, okay. And so I, I decided I needed to, to do more study. And so then I did go to graduate school. In Japan? Or? No, I went, good, good question. I went to graduate school, so I, the graduate school I chose was uh, called School for International Training in Brattleboro, Vermont. How did you, you come to find out? I was looking. It's, I was looking for schools that specialized in international relations, intercultural communication, international effectiveness, international management, and I narrowed it down to two. There's a school in Monterey, California, and then there was a school for international training. There's also another school in Arizona called uh, Thunderbird, and a lot of people have gone to one of the three of these schools, and I chose um, I chose SIT. Um, and I did that on purpose because my, my, my fourth year in college, when I went back to Kansas, was my first experience with reverse culture shock. And that's much harder. That's much worse. Matter of fact, that's what my graduate research was on, was Very reverse culture shock. That's interesting. That's something I always warn people about whenever I give them interviews. When they're coming into the club, I tell them after you've lived here for a year mm-hmm. and go back to wherever you came from in the world, that's when you'll realize what you learned to put up with. Yes. Yes. See, because, because Japan, and I think this country does that to foreigners more than any other country because it's so service oriented. Mm-hmm. Very they much. don't expect you to be a part of this culture. Yep. They expect you just to abide, abide by the rules, be polite. Yep. 
and everything else will take care of. Mm -hmm. Everything else is taken care yeah. of. Yeah. Well, and you also learn just how much you've changed. Your perspective shifts dramatically when you when you're in such a different culture. And I think this is, you know, when you're in any different culture, it, it does change, of course. But one is dramatically different as the U.S. and Japan are. It it was a profound experience for me to come back and and one person uh, referred to it. I, I love this 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 uh, this metaphor. She said it's like if you wear contact lenses and you put them in and you switch eyes, that's what reverse culture shock is like. Because everything looks almost right. Because you come back and people are listening to new music. They're, they're, they're eating new food. They're calling, you know, language changes because it always does. And you're like, wait a minute. What? I don't, I, I'm a native speaker of the language. I, I get it. But I don't get it. And so I chose, when I chose, so going back to Kansas, and people in Kansas, they didn't, and, and this is not any way disrespectful to the people there who love me and I love them very much, but didn't really know how to ask me. How to what? Ask me about my experience. Oh, of course. You know? No. And there's no frame of reference, right? So, you know, my father, for all of his willingness to let me do this strange stuff, I get back and his first question and one of his only ones is, how's the flight? Of course. Now that's not in any way a criticism. He didn't know what else to ask. Any more than you would have had you not come. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's something I think we have to, to express to people too. So for, it's like dealing with a small child. Mm -hmm. Since I work with kids all the mm -hmm. time, sometimes I realize, and I'll say it to them as if I expect them to, but for them, it's the first time they've ever been in that situation. They're yeah. only seven years old. Yeah. And I tell parents all the time. Yep. Yeah. Let me tell you, let me ask you this, Randall. So you finished all your experiences yeah. here in Japan as a teacher. You mm -hmm. taught for a while and yep. you worked with a company. What was the first real company you worked with? So, well, that's a good question. So after graduate, my graduate school path was nine months intensive study on campus. And then um, about a year of practical experience and you fill out reports and then finally a final capstone research project. I always wanted to work in education. That was that was that was my my career path was working in the field of education. Who who you think stimulated you to feel that way? I would have, I have to go back to that history teacher. Okay, he did it. Because you like the way he handled it. I loved the the way that he could bring people and not require them to go there. Just sit in front of them. He's not going to get everyone. Nope. If Matter he of gets fact, one, he's happy. Exactly. Maybe not even get, you know, maybe not get anybody. But no. the process of doing it, of engaging, that that had such a profound impact on on my life. And, and he's not the only one, but other teachers. So as well. what do you do now? Are you a coach? I am. So I moved into the corporate world eventually. Okay. Um, I worked after graduate school. I worked in a couple of different schools. I wasn't a teacher. I was an administrator. I was student services and housing. Okay. And, and this was Japanese. Schools? This was in, in, in the U.S. In the U.S. Okay. Uh, but actually, the first school I worked at was an international school. Most of the students were Japanese. Okay. 
And so that was also because we were going to be speaking with them in Japanese, most in English mostly, but in an emergency, taking a kid to the hospital, because that's what I did a lot. You want to make, they want to make sure that they're understanding and working with parents. The parents call from the other side of the world. The last thing they want to do is hear somebody not speaking to them in their language. So by that time, my Japanese was good enough that I could speak to, to the parents, I could speak to the kids, and make sure that they understand that there's your safety net. But also just managing the logistics of housing, making sure the beds are made, making sure the laundry gets done, making sure everything is clean, making sure the rules are enforced in a way that people are feel, are, are feel more empowered as opposed to just, you know, a boot on the neck. You, know, right, it's, it's, right, it's, right. you can't do that. I moved eventually into the corporate world, still in the U.S., but also still in the corporate learning world. I started in a relocation company that offered cultural and language services for relocating expatriates. And I was a language training manager. So I wasn't teaching the language, but I was hiring language teachers all over North, Central, and South America to either teach incoming expats the local language, English, Portuguese, Spanish, or um, hiring teachers to teach outgoing expats the language of their chosen country. We also did intercultural training, and that was really fascinating to me. And even now, so I moved back to Japan um, in about 16 years ago, and I've been here since. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing now is I'm working with leaders, uh, really focusing on leadership development, not only in the intercultural space, but just how do leaders communicate with their people how do they empower their people to, to do the work that needs to be done? How do they bring their teams together to align around a vision and then to build the structures to support that vision, to use the systems that can drive that vision forward and to tell the stories that we want to tell. That's, that's creation of that, of that corporate culture and influencing on it as well. So that's so um, I do that as, as, as a trainer. Mm -hmm. I do that as a coach, and that's a very rewarding thing to be able to do. To, do you see I, yourself doing that continually? Oh, absolutely. I don't think I'll ever retire. I think I'd, I, I love doing it. Um, I love interacting with people about this. I love helping people understand the impact that they have. I was just listening to, to another podcast, um, Adam Grant. Adam uh, Grant. Professor, and, and, you know, he talks about how data suggests that the relationship with your, with your boss is just as important, sometimes more, than the relationship with your spouse on your psychological impact. That's a scary... And leaders need to understand. And see, you know, it's, it, to add to that, Randall, it's even scarier if your boss happens to be you. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't know many people that can look in the mirror and tell that person they see that they truly love them. Yeah. And I've said that if you can do that, and once you can do that and mean it, you'll never have another enemy. That is so incredible. Randall, I want to ask, before I end the podcast, mm. there's a question I like to ask everyone. Sure. Knowing what you know now, mm. and all the experiences you've had up to this point, if you could magically go back in time and meet the younger Randall and give him advice, how old would he be? And what advice would you give him? 
I've heard your podcast before, so I've heard this question before, and I've thought about how to answer it, and then and it comes out differently every time. I would go back to Randall just before the teenage years hit, because those were rough years. They're rough years for everybody, but those were rough years. And the advice I would I would give this kid is learn how to laugh at yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. Did you find yourself doing that when you were young? Very much so. I wanted to. I wanted to do things, you know, perfectly from the start, which never happens, and then beat myself up for not doing it. And there's still moments of anxiety, and I do. I, I, I do tell myself, just remember to laugh at yourself. The sooner you can laugh at yourself, the less anyone else can laugh at you, because you already beat them to it, and now they're laughing with you, and not at you, and it's fine. Appreciate the humor that. 30 years ago experience with my host mother of appreciating the humor in life, you know. The universe can be individually tragic, but it's cosmically hilarious. That's so cute. That so <laughs> and cute. we can appreciate that, that, that hilarity. And so that, that, that's, that's the main bit of advice I'd give that kid. And, and I, I still give that kid that same advice. That's beautiful. Randall, thank you so much. Thank We're going to have to do this again. Absolutely. Sure. Well, let's do this again in a couple of years. That sounds good. Where we may not take a couple of years. A year would be, maybe six months. We absolutely. Let's just keep, keep going. Sure. <laughs> I want to thank all of you for watching this podcast and listening to it. Never forget, it's all on loan. So continue to reach for the stars. Because you're too blessed to be stressed.